Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design. Hi Tim, welcome to Talking Design. Tim, you've just released uh, a new book, but for those who don't know, you did a book previously um, called 100 Canberra Houses, uh, a century of capital uh, architecture with who you co-authored with Alan Roberts. Um, this is a new book um, and you said it formed part of your um, thesis. It's called Winning Homes, 75 Australian House Design Competitions. Well done on completing the book. Thank you. Tim, what was the reason for actually writing the book to start with? I commenced it um, as a PhD at the University of South Australia. Um, I spent about 15, 18 months drawing up the list of competitions um, and could see it was incredibly rich. I, I didn't think I'd be able to track the first one back to 1827. Um, unfortunately, I got a bit um, waylaid, as doctoral students are apt to do, and I um, decided to actually withdraw from the PhD and write the book. I thought that was more important, and it's, I think it's come out as a really good product. I'm very pleased with it. Tim? Most people who write books on architecture are they're kind of focused on the finished product. So that's really what their their raison d'etre is, the finished product. Some of these houses which date back to the um, the earliest times are finished. You know, they were actually built. Others by A. V. Jennings, by different developers were built along the way, but a lot of them were simply concepts. So that is quite unusual to actually write on ideas that never actually saw the light of day. Yes, it was crucial as part of um, doing a book, which is, it's a 150-year it's history from 1827 to 1976. It's not definitive. Not every competition is in there. But certainly when I started doing the research and I realised that, as you say, there were many competitions where really there were just plans that perhaps were put on display. Um, it was part of an exhibition that was raising money for funds for the war effort or something like that. But then there were certainly many competitions that did, especially in the later stages of the book, as you say, they did result in, in fact, in one example, there was a display village of 20 individual houses that were built from a single competition. So you have these extremes of just ideas up on a board somewhere in a room being looked at by people who perhaps paid their shilling to see the exhibition. And then you see this extraordinary village of houses that were built in Vermont South in Melbourne. Tim, um Architects have always been really interested in competitions. It's not something that's new. The idea of entering a competition has probably been going on since the inception of the profession itself. There's always been competitions. What do you think is the driver behind these competitions? Is it the money? Is it the ego? Is it just the sense of doing something so left of field that it doesn't matter whether it's built or not? And it's something that a lot of clients, you know, their clients wouldn't have accepted if they presented them such a scheme? I think it's an opportunity for architects to possibly make their name or cement their reputation. Um, 
there were some competitions that um, there was big money in some of them. There was one competition in 1956 which had a prize of £3,000. That's $100,000 in today's money. Um, and that house was built. Uh, so there was an added benefit because it was seen by 100,000 people. This was the the plywood house competition in 1956 in, in Brisbane. And so for the architect, uh, Peter Heathwood, there was an extraordinary benefit um, he uh, shared the prize money with uh, John Dalton. They set up a business together. The house was built. And uh, incredibly, actually, when the house uh, was eventually moved, it was bought by his sister and it's still standing. It was moved to the Gap uh, and extended and it's still standing. So I think in that single competition, I've given you a really good sense of how an architect and Peter Heathwood and John Dalton had just graduated. So it's a really wonderful example of how an architect could have a chance to, to make their name with a single competition win. Um, Tim, the other uh, thing that comes to mind is a lot of these um, uh, uh, competitions were actually sponsored by people like either the Age Good Homes, uh, the Age program that um, Robin Boyd started in the 50s and Neil Clarahan took over as the second director and then there was the Gas and Fuel uh, competition, Gas and Fuel and then there was people like, um, you know, uh, um, you know, builders of, of mass housing. What role did they have in these competitions and is it still relevant today? They played a, a crucial role and in fact Victoria really um, shines in this book because Victoria hosts over a third of the competitions um, and certainly towards the end of the book the small home service uh, which changes its name to the uh, uh, Architects Housing Service uh, sponsors some really extraordinary competitions. And as you say, they have kind of co-sponsors. Uh, so The Age definitely um, was a, a major sponsor. The Gas and Fuel Corporation of Victoria, uh, as you mentioned, Jennings or uh, the Ing brothers would, would build the houses and put them on display and they, they would be seen by tens of thousands of people. Of course, with the Gas and Fuel Corporation, it was stated in the competition uh, conditions that uh, <clears throat> entrants had to feature gas and all of the um, appliances in the house, um, sometimes even in the outside barbecue. So for the companies that were involved, it, was, it wasn't just them wanting to support good architecture, it was about them exploiting a competition to market their products. And that's, that's not to criticise them, I mean, them being there has produced this really wonderful array of competitions in Victoria. And in fact, the last one is in the book is that last competition in 1976. So it's a rich history for Victoria. Tim, why did the competitions, um, uh, with the backing of these various people, why did it stop? Because obviously it was very successful. Was it the timing? Was it 
um, people just wanted McMansions and they weren't interested in what architects were doing. Well, why did it stop? Because in my mind, it isn't something that we see now. I think you're right. I mean, the book has ended in 1976 because it runs to 150 years. So there were competitions that were occurring after after that year. But you're quite right that if you you just have to look at architecture journals today and see that competitions have started, especially for houses, have started to uh, to drop away. I remember there was one about five or six years ago by Mervac in Sydney. Um, and it was a very tough competition. They had uh, six shortlisted entrants and only one went on to win and it was built. But they're not regular events. And it's surprising because there are enormous benefits for, well, Mervac in the situation decided that um, it would be good publicity, good marketing, a, a, a special architect-designed house. But in general terms, I wonder possibly if architects are, are, are also perhaps less interested in doing the work for competitions anymore. I'm not quite sure what's driving it. And it's a shame because competitions have really an extraordinarily rich history. Well, they obviously entered the Institute Awards, which is a regular in all the states. So that's obviously one way of entering a competition, but that's not put, that's not in a sense the same thing. That's putting no. through a client's design, which, um, you know, could be anything up to a trillion dollars in cost. It doesn't really, it's not, the, it's not what made architecture accessible for the competitions and some of these houses such as the small aged home competitions you know you could buy a plan for very little and you could build a house for a few thousand dollars so it was kind of democratizing architecture i agree um certainly the competitions you were just talking about i would describe them as being more akin to an architectural award um where the house has been built and it's submitted and it's in competition with other like houses. But you're right. I mean, the earliest competition that the um, Victorian Small Home Service held was in 1953. I mean, that's nearly 70 years ago um, in a period post-war when there was deprivation of materials and labour and it was a really exciting competition. It's, I, I was, had great delight in the number of architects I was able to talk to and interview for the book, and one of them was Peter McIntyre, who actually designed an extraordinary um, a polygon of, of a house with a, a, a central water tank, and, and Peter is 92 and he is... I'm sure you would know, still working and uh, very generously talked to me. And uh, that's, he was joined by other architects like Kevin Borland, another significant Victorian architect um, who also won in a special category for that competition. But there were other standard houses as other categories in that competition. And you're right, people um, could then choose that house because 
those winning entries, the prizes would be awarded, but they would go into the stock of houses that the small home service would actually offer to the public. So there was a benefit to the service, but more than that, there was a benefit to Victorian people because they had more exciting plans to choose from. The other thing I've noticed through um, reading the book, and I haven't uh, read every page, but I've, I've gone through it um, uh, and I've really enjoyed everything that I've seen, but you've really picked out a lot of great architects who um, really went on to quite illustrious careers. Um, people like Bernie Joyce, um, Montgomery King and Trengove, um, Holger and Holger, who are one of my favourites, um, who started in the 60s. And their work um, obviously became, uh, uh, you know, more luxurious for, you know, wealthier clients. But the plans obviously uh, resonated with the jury at the time as people to watch out for. So it was a way of actually uh, making a name for many of these people in the early days. It, it was. It was. It was a starting point for many architects. Uh, as I said earlier, for some of them, it really launched their careers. And you mentioned the names of Joyce and, and Holgar there, and there was a competition again in good old Victoria, uh, in fact, three held by the Herald newspaper between fifty-five and fifty-seven. And there's David Brunton and, and Brenda Joyce winning in, in fifty-five, and there are the Holgars winning in, in 57, but more than that, that house was built uh, and was, was put on display um, and, in, in fact, eventually transferred and, and built in East Bentley um, so that it was wonderful publicity for the Holgars, the 56 competitions, Smith, Tracy, Lyon and Brock, who are still in existence other and, uh, under another name now. Um, I think they're uh, Tracy and Smith or Smith and Tracy. I'm sorry. Smith I can't and Tracy. I think. Smith and Tracy. So in that, those three single competitions, you can see that they have, you could argue, helped propel those architects um, to establish their name and and um, and really get out there and start to develop their their business. Tim, in your research, were you able to actually visit any of the houses that won awards at the time, like the one in East Bentley, or is it was it a big ask just to? Boy, it was enough. It was enough spending months on Trove trying to go back to 1827. I'm, I'm based in Adelaide, and it would have been lovely to have been able to fly around the country and, and look at these houses. Unfortunately, especially for the small home service houses, very small houses appropriate for their period. And I did discover, not surprisingly, that. A lot of houses have been, I mean, you just have to go onto Google Maps and you can see that a house has, has been extended, renovated, they've rendered it, um, or it's been completely demolished. Uh, and so it's, it's, I mean, it's not surprising these houses were, were small. Um, some of the later competitions, the houses are still there. Um, but it, uh, unfortunately, it's, uh, 
not surprising that after 50 or 60 years that a, that a house has been not adequate to a subsequent own, owner's needs and um, the original design simply doesn't exist anymore. In, what's interesting about these designs, they're still very contemporary today. Um, there's no uh, reason why people shouldn't buy your book and look at the plans to get inspiration for homes today. Is it something that people should start being more reflective about and say, look, you know, there's, there's relevance in the designs now? Oh, I, I completely agree with that. It's, I, I've just opened the book to a page where, in fact, it was three student architects. Which page, a, Tim? Page 146 and 147. And it was a competition again held in Victoria. And But this was one of the uh, first ones for the small home service where they uh, actually had a student component. And uh, I, I talked to all of the architects who are still working, John Herneman, Noel McKernan, Peter Brown, Michael Jan. Of course, they were thrilled to think that their, their early student work would be represented. But I'm looking at these plans now and they're, they're beautiful, flat-roofed, um, modernist, elegant, beautifully detailed, not enormously sized, lovely indoor-outdoor flow. They teach us everything which is good about mid-century modernist architecture, and I do make the point um, in the introduction to the book that competitions, one of their great pluses is that they have shown how they have encouraged much better residential architecture. And I agree that much of what is being built today in Australia is very poor and there's, there's a lot to learn. There's over 120 floor plans in the book. Um, and really you could just look at them and design your own house or work with an architect. Could, because they, are, they are many of them really superb. What's interesting about the book is that you do create this lovely cross spread of, because you cover so many years from the Georgian uh, style and inspired homes right through to, um, you know, the jazz modern style of the thirties. And there's just that, you know, even for people who, who live in these um, in significant homes or period homes today, 20th century homes, there's a lot to be learned by just looking at the floor plans and seeing how the original floor plans were once conceived rather than just how they've been added to over the years. I, I agree. There's, uh, there's just... Uh, there's so many plans and you can see how um, design has changed over the years. I mean, certainly in the competitions in the 30s that were being held actually to try and stimulate building in the Depression and they were, they were very tight. I'm looking at a plan here on page 59 and it has a dining alcove. So you don't have a formal dining room. It's, you don't really have you can't really afford to to build a separate dining room, but it's there. You are. It's a lovely two-story, beautiful flat roof, concrete roof, uh, pipe railing above the uh, garage for a um, a balcony. Um, but you start to move on, and there's no question that coming into the 60s. 
people are starting to build in en-suites, family rooms are starting to feature, the master bedroom is seen as a separate uh, area for the parents, which is separate from the children, who may have a playroom attached to their bedrooms, um, and as I said, the indoor-outdoor flow, and certainly uh, architects are becoming more aware of um, orienting the house for uh, north winter sunshine and um, it's 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 very interesting to see how houses have developed over the decades starting mainly from the 30s um, as you say there's a bit of Georgian um, in, in that early period and there are some clunky designs um, but most of them are really really outstanding for their period and it's it's very exciting to see what architects have done over well it's a good 80 90 years now um tim a couple of things is when you look at some of the plans i mean they're so simple really lovely simple you know you kind of think wouldn't they be perfect um beach houses or holiday houses so you kind of create this lovely um change from your city abode so even if people look at this book and say, oh, you know, I couldn't live in it, you know, full time. It doesn't have a computer room and it doesn't have a theatre room. When I look at these plans, I think how amazing and how lovely they'd be as providing another experience to a rural retreat or a beachside. Yes, uh, you are right. People will look at these plans and think they are perhaps a bit too understated, a bit too, a bit too small. But yes, there was, uh, well, I mean, actually, Terry Dorrow won a competition in 1917. It, it was for a holiday house, a beautiful plan with lovely Japanese uh, effects inside sliding uh, doors, which closed off the uh, sleeping room. Uh, but the, uh, there was another competition as well where there was a very elegant plan submitted, and I'm trying to find it now, not very successfully, uh, but yes, understated, and you're right, they can be appropriated for, for other needs and holiday houses you, could be perfect for them. I think what this book says to me um, mainly is that I think we've become a little bit too complicated in the way we approached architecture. And, you know, just because something's bigger and more complicated doesn't mean it's necessarily better. And have we lost our way, do you think, Tim? Oh, I think we've completely <laughs> lost our way. It's uh... Because now beach houses are more like urban, urban you know, Palazzias. Yes, they're huge. It's it's dispiriting to drive around now and see that people are starting to demolish older houses, perhaps from the 30s, 40s, 50s. But the house, of course, once they've done that, they can't really afford to bring in an architect and and uh, have an architect design home. So they're putting up a project home and. Um, I'm afraid project housing, a lot of it today, leaves me, leaves me cold. But, and that is where the competitions actually led the way. There were project housing companies like Merchant uh, Builders um, that became involved with competitions because they truly wanted to 
get the best designs and then use those to sell to their clients. And uh, that doesn't seem to be the case nowadays. If you look at most project housing designs, they're just very large. Um, and you can see they're going to fill the block of land uh, with little garden space. But these houses, they are really elegant and tight and quite beautiful, I think. Yeah, look, I will continue to explore the book, Tim. Uh, to me, it's just a little gem. And it's really been a pleasure looking through and, and, and seeing some of the great names um, who became a name, a significant name later on, design the most simplest abodes. But there's always something quite interesting about them, whether it's the floor plan or putting the wet areas together so it was making it much more economical to build. There's real thought and consideration. Look, it's been a joy. Um, hopefully, I you will be able to do another book um, for me to review because, look, it's been a pleasure. Um, Thank you. Yes, I'm already at work on my third book, which is uh, a book about Adelaide modernist houses. So I hope I can get that finished and we can be talking in a few years time about that <laughs> look thanks so much it's called the book's called winning homes 75 australian uh, house design competitions and it's um the publisher housestead press housestead press you can order it from your local bookshop or of course it's available online at the usual online bookshops amazon booktopia book depository Thanks so much, Tim. It's Thank been an you. absolute joy interviewing you. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council.